So, this afternoon, uh, as we did this morning, began the cycle from the beginning, afresh. Uh, This afternoon also we'll begin the cycle of the four measurables from the beginning, afresh. But I'd like to bring in a little bit of the background. Some of you will be very familiar with this, perhaps some a little bit less so. But it's exactly the point where I feel that there is such real practical insight and wisdom in these teachings of the four immeasurables, that they're not simply four very nice qualities of the heart. They are very nice qualities of the heart, but such wisdom in the midst of these teachings. And so what I'll be sharing with you now will be drawing from a great a fifth century commentary uh, by Buddha Gosa, A Path of Purification. He's drawing on centuries of wisdom of uh, Buddhist contemplatives before him. So he, he wasn't presenting himself as an original thinker. He was presenting himself as a very systematic, meticulous compiler of centuries of experience and insights, based, of course, on the Buddhist teachings, but enriched then by, oh, something like 800 years, 800, 900 years of contemplative practice. So, Buddha Gosa, and then a second part will be drawing from the Tibetan tradition. So here's the point, in essence, this will not be a big long Dharma talk, but try to hit some of the really salient points as we stand back from the four immeasurables and see the profound way in which they interrelate. So the very brief points I'd like to address here are, first of all, what we call the false facsimiles, or very, very literally the near enemies. In Tibetan, it would be something like chatun zumba, chatun zumba, for each of the four immeasurables, semeji. So the false facsimiles, so briefly, for loving kindness, we I, presumably know, we all have a pretty clear idea what this, this is. It is a genuine caring about the well-being of another sentient being. And of course, that other sentient being could be ourselves, so self-directed loving kindness. But it is an aspiration, it's not just a feeling or an emotion. It is recognizing the subjectivity of the person that we're attending to, and very simply, it's wishing that person well. So, something quite straightforward. Likewise with compassion, not simply an emotion, but very, again, attending to the subjectivity of the other being, or could be, again, compassion for ourselves, wishing that we may be free of suffering. Coming back to loving-kindness, then, it is really quite selfless. It is really attending to the other person. And in this aphorism of William James, for for the moment, what we attend to is reality. In attending closely to the presence of the other person, then we get it. Oh, I'm not, I'm not the only one here. You know, this is not a dream. These are not mere appearances to my mind. Oh, there's somebody else out there, is there? You know, who has their own hopes and fears, joys and sorrows and so forth. It's getting it. It's really getting it. And we get it by attending closely. And then we care about that person by that person becoming real. So there's authentic loving kindness. But there's the false facsimile, that which can look an awful lot like loving kindness. It will talk like loving-kindness. It will smile like loving-kindness. It will maybe bring gifts like loving-kindness. It'll look a lot like loving-kindness. And it's sneaky. Okay, it's the false facsimile. And the false facsimile of loving-kindness is self-centered attachment. Self-centered attachment, okay? And self-centered attachment, we may indeed have a real fondness for the other person. We may find the other person very attractive very admirable. We may really enjoy being with the other person, even just, phys- just being in the same room, conversing, let alone something physically more intimate. So we really enjoy the other person. We find that person's presence gratifying. Maybe the other person admires us or has other qualities we just find so attractive. But 
as we say, I'm so fond of you, I really like you, I love you, here, have some flowers, you know, whatever it is, it's really basically the attitude that you have towards a really nice automobile that you've just purchased and you want that automobile to, to serve you well, you know? It's an I relationship. It is really fundamentally about me, that is, as I attend to this other person, this other person makes me feel good, gives me pleasure, gives me joy, gives me a sense of security, a sense of being loved, a sense of being of important, of value, admirable, and so forth. But it's me, 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 me all the way through. You make me feel such and such and such and such, and I really like that, therefore I love you. But of course, if you stop doing that, oh, we'll have to reassess the whole situation. <laughs> I'm not sure I love you anymore. Because <laughs> you're not making me happy anymore. You know, you're not delivering the goods, but keep on delivering the goods, and I love you, I love you, I love you. Where I love you is basically an expression of gratitude, but it's also an expression of keep it coming. Keep it coming. You know? It's self. It's self-centered attachment. So, there's that. I'm going to jump over to another one that is similar and not quite the same. Because the remedy for this loving-kindness gone astray into self-centered attachment is, and it makes such good sense, although not immediately, intuitively obvious, is equanimity. It's equanimity. It's attending to this I-you relationship rather than I-it relationship. It is attending to the subjective presence, again, the hopes and fears, joys and sorrows of the other person. And whether or not that person appears admirable, attractive, unattractive, not admirable, indifferent, neutral, or what have you, all of that is kind of missing the mark. It's missing the mark. If you have a child who has diarrhea, diarrhea, okay, it smells really bad. It's really not pleasant. And so, but what mother would say, I'm sorry, child, but you have diarrhea, I'm finding it very disagreeable, work this out and get back to me. <laughs> when you don't smell as bad, you know? Or the child has, gets a really strong fever, and maybe is even a little bit, you know, talking, rambling and so forth. See, you're, you're really not making much sense, but come back to me when your fever's lower, and we can have a nice chat. You know? That would be a very weird mother that ends you into such an I-it relationship. So no, the children do not always, always appear agreeable. They're not always attractive. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But then the mother is looking through that, and of course what she's really attending to is here is a child. Here's my child. And so equanimity is the antidote. Among the four immeasurables, equanimity comes to the rescue of loving kindness when it goes astray. And it slips into, I love you because you really make me feel good. But I want to jump for this, for this morning's practice, or this afternoon's practice, we will be focusing on loving kindness. But I want to therefore address what happens when empathetic joy goes astray. Empathetic joy. So I think we have a clear sense of what it is. Taking delight in other people's joys, their virtues, their success, their happiness. But when it goes astray, it just slips into this false facsimile, which is just, frankly, it's hedonism. It's just getting totally caught up in, isn't life grand? Life is beautiful. I just, I just think life is wonderful. Isn't it really just, aren't we all having a good time? 
You know, aren't we all having a good time? I'm so glad you're having a good time. I'm having a good time too. Put her there. Let's have a good time together. Okay? And it is empathetic. I mean, I'm really enjoying I'm glad you're having a good time. Me too. So let's just have a good time together. You know? Yip, yip. Samsara is really not that bad. It's working out after all. The Buddhists were wrong. Samsara can be fun. And there it is. Well, it's very true. Samsara is fun on the one, on, you know, for intervals here and there. Otherwise, it would have no drawing power. We would have all become disillusioned and followed the path to nirvana and enlightenment a long time ago. So samsara really has great PR, great public relations. It really looks very seductive. But what's the antidote? And this is how, we, how it relates back to this afternoon's meditation. What's the antidote when we just start thinking, you know, I think I'm one of those lucky people. I think hedonic pleasure and samsara is going to work out for me because I found the right person, the right job, the right place to live. I'm financially secure. My health is good. In fact, it's immutably good. I'm one of those just naturally healthy people. It's be really lucky to be one of those, you know. I eat right, I exercise right, and therefore I'm going to have a long, healthy life and I'm going to die when I really am ready. Okay, uh, you know, I'll check out. But, you know, when I'm good and ready, when I've just worn this body out completely, it's, it's homogeneously shriveled up to an old, decrepit body, and I say, okay, finished, and then out, okay? In other words, when, we th when we're really more banking on hedonic pleasure is going to deliver the goods. I'm one of those just lucky people in my relationships, job, health, economics, the whole bit. Uh, I'm banking on that one. I'm going to win the samsara lottery. What's the antidote? Because it's delusional, frankly. It's delusional. What's the antidote? There's only one right answer. It's loving kindness. And it's an interesting one. It's the one that is least intuitively obvious. Now, for people with monastic background, we have three monastics here, one ex-monastic. Uh, when a monastic starts getting really hung up on desire, for example, whether it's sensual desire, it could be not so gross. It could be desire, I hope people really respect me as a teacher or really respect that I'm such an excellent monk or nun, that I'm really strict. Or as Genlam Rimba told me when he was up there in retreat, when we were in retreat together, it was so incredibly charming. But he said the last of the eight mundane concerns to go. Here's this yogi, incredible yogi, been in retreat for like 20 years, really strict. The monk's monk. And he said, when you're living there in solitude, you might remember this story, when you're living there in solitude in utter simplicity, really simplicity, a little tiny shack up on the side of the mountain, are you, are you really hung up on, are you concerned with a material acquisition? Well, no, you don't have anything. You're not going to get anything. So, no, you've forgotten that one. Are you hung up on sensual pleasures? Well, no, you're having dal and rice, and then you have rice and dal. Once in a while you have dal and rice, and other times you have rice and dal. You know, not a whole lot of variety. Or maybe a little bit of tsampa to spice things up a bit. So, no, the food is boring, and there's nothing else. I mean, enjoy a sunset when you get around to it. But besides that, sensual pleasures are just not being dished up. So that's two out of two, down the tubes. Praise in terms of things we really attracted. Well, you're living in solitude. Who's going to praise you? You know, the yogis don't come up and knock on your door. Hey, yogi, good on you, mate. It's, it's not happening. You know, they're not praising each other. They're just meditating. The villagers are not scurrying up the hill. You're a really good yogi, you know. 
It's, that's not happening. So if you are looking for praise, going up in solitude on the side of a mountain is the wrong place to look. Okay? So it looks good. We're almost finished. The eight world of has come in two sets of four. We've just finished three out of four. There's only one more. Oh, oh, that one. Respect, appreciation, admiration, acceptance, acknowledgement, all of those in a bottle. Nyambarwa, dan nyamba. And this people don't have to say to your face. It's you're looking, you're up on the side of the mountain there in Dharamsal, up, up above McLeod Gunge. I've lived up there. And you look down at about 45 degrees angle, you see straight as the crow flies, and you can see the town of McLeod Gunge, a couple of thousand Tibetans there. And some of them know that you're, including when I was up there, some people down there knew that this Western guy was up there with the, with the big guys. <laughs> he wasn't over at Tushita where the Westerners meditate. This guy was up where the real yogis are. We're meditating 10, 20, 30 years. Alan Wallace is up there, major leagues, you know. And I got one of the huts, you know. I got one of the huts. And so whether it's me, but even Genlam Rimba said this of him, far more mature in practice than I am, am or was, he said, when you've relinquished all the other ones, that thought, the people down there in the village, they know I'm here. They know I'm here. <laughs> they, they know I'm really serious. They're really thinking, oh, those yogis, up on, and I'm one of those yogis. And I'm really pretty hot stuff. It's that. That's the last one to go. You know? So seeing even through that, that too is kind of a craving that monks and nuns can do, as we know. I was a monk back then as well. So what's the antidote? <clears throat> when we get, start getting hung up on samsara's looking pretty good, maybe I really don't need this dharma business that much, that's for losers. You know, dharma's kind of for losers, isn't it? For people who just can't find happiness in the world, they're kind of depressed, a bit grumpy, can't get nice romance going, probably didn't do well in business, otherwise they'd still be doing business and having a really good time. Dharma's for losers for the weaker, weaker people, right? Whereas, I'm one of the strong, the bold, the beautiful. <laughs> you know? And I can make samsara work, you know? And so when we get hung up on that wonderful fantasy that I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and I'm flat out, I'm lucky enough, and I'm handsome enough. Really handsome people here. <laughs> that I'm gonna make it work. What's the antidote? And the monks, are know, monks know that, you know, from the monastic perspective, you can bring in the sledgehammers of, re, re, well, they'll start meditating on death, meditate, meditate on impermanence, meditate on the nature of suffering. If you start getting hung on sexuality, meditate on decaying corpses. That really takes the fun out. Decaying, disgusting, smelly corpses. You know. That pretty well does it. Or just imagine the body being dismembered. Imagine somebody you're really craving and just imagine taking it apart piece by piece. I call it the monastic strip keys. The monastic strip tease. That first of all, you take off all the clothes. First of all, take all the clothes. Looking pretty good. You, know. you have this object of desire. Take off all the clothes. Oh yeah, there, there's the body I really like. But I call it monastic strip tease. Because you're not just taking off the clothes. Then you take off the skin. In your mind's eye, take off all the skin. So you can see the capillaries, you know, you can see what's underneath the skin. And then start removing the outer flesh, and you see, oh, fat. And then you keep on going, and then you get into the internal organs, and the bone, and the marrow, and the viscera, and the contents of the intestines, and, you know, 
there's not a whole lot to be attracted to there. And it works. So that's kind of a head-on collision with desire. Head-on collision. Just smack it with meditation impermanence, death, the foulness of the human body, the aging of the decomposition of the dead human body. It's a head-on collision, you know. So that's one way to deal with such infatuation with hedonic pleasure. It works. But here's a gentle approach. That's not so gentle. That's a head-on collision. Now we're going to get, get to the meditation. What is a very wise antidote for getting infatuated with, just really getting attached to hedonic pleasure? The smart one, the, the smart money, is on develop loving-kindness for yourself and really think, what will truly bring me happiness? What will actually deliver the goods? when everything around me is in a state of flux and virtually nothing in the surrounding environment is under my control. Not spouses, not children, not economy, not even my own health. Virtually nothing out there is under my own control. But there's a possibility of gaining mastery over this mind and a real possibility of drawing forth the internal resources, the inner resources of my own mind, and finding a, a wellspring of well-being within that is not contingent upon outer circumstances, other people treating me the way I want them to treat me, and so forth. So, in short, the remedy for empathetic joy when it goes astray, and it falls into just an infatuation, a real attachment to hedonic pleasure, is actually cultivating loving-kindness, especially for yourself. To get real, and really consider wherein lies my true happiness. And is it real? Is this being realistic to think that I will be so homogeneously lucky throughout life that I'll just go from one happy day to another because reality is just going to rise up to meet me, meet me with one pleasurable circumstance after another. Day after day after day after day. It's just going to be one great day after another because I'm one of those lucky people. You know. Well, nobody is that lucky. So loving kindness then is the remedy for the infatuation with samsara. Interesting. So let's practice it. We'll go back to where we began. Hopefully go back there for the first time. Again, as always, with an act of loving-kindness for ourselves, as we let the awareness slip into the body, fill the body, and settle the body in its natural state, soothing the body as we settle it with a quality of ease, stillness, and vigilance.
then settle the voice, especially the inner voice, the inner commentary, rumination. Settle this inner voice in its natural state of effortless silence by breathing out and breathing out all the energy, all the turbulent energy behind this inner flow of obsessive and compulsive thinking as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, utterly releasing in body, speech and mind with each out-breath. And continuing to release and let go as the next breath flows in effortlessly. Settle your mind. First of all, settling your mind in a state of ease as you temporarily, for this brief session, release your concerns about the past, your hopes and fears about the future. Set your mind at ease, letting it come to rest in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations of the breath within the body calming the mind with this flow of mindfulness of breathing, of the flow of, of sensations of the in and out breath. Now let's move from the more passive to the more dynamic, creative, 
and imaginative capacities of the mind as we venture into the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. This practice is one that we may do at the beginning of the day, perhaps in an, in an abbreviated or shorter fashion, to set the motivation for the day. We may also do this practice, short or long, at the end of the day, as we dedicate merit, as we direct whatever goodness, whatever virtue there is from the day that has gone by to the realization of our most meaningful aspirations. This practice is really good any time. And it entails a type of quest, a vision quest, to use a traditional term. It's our own quest, seeking our own vision of our own flourishing, what would make us truly happy, bring us a deep sense of well-being, of fulfillment, and meaning. So this is the first question. What would make you truly happy? How do you envision your own well-being, a sense of deep and rich fulfillment, a profoundly satisfying and meaningful life? In other words, what is your heart's desire? Envision your own well-being as you let your imagination play and be bold. Imagine if you will or take on the working hypothesis, something to bet your life on, that in fact you do have the capacity, the potential to realize your innermost desire your most meaningful aspirations. And imagine that this potential resides in the deepest dimension of your existence. In Buddhism we call it Buddha nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, the ultimate source of happiness. And if you will symbolically visualize this dimension of your own awareness, 
as an incandescent, radiant white orb of light, right in the center of your chest. And imagine this now as a light of loving kindness, a light of joy, a light of primordial purity. And with each out-breath, breathe out this aspiration. May I be truly well and happy. May I realize my heart's desire, find the fulfillment, the meaning, the satisfaction and joy that I most deeply desire. With each out-breath, arouse this yearning, this aspiration of loving-kindness for yourself. And with each out-breath, imagine from this inexhaustible source of light at your heart, rays of light emanating out, saturating every cell of your body, permeating every aspect of your mind, your whole being, filling you with this light of loving-kindness and this light of joy, with every out-breath. letting your imagination play. Imagine realizing such joy and such well-being here and now. The potential is there. Imagine that potential becoming manifest, being realized. Now we shift to the second question and the second quest. 
it is clearly impossible to realize such well-being and fulfillment entirely on our own with no help from anyone else, from anything outside. That's clearly impossible. We don't even exist in isolation, let alone is there any possibility of flourishing in isolation. Even yogis living in deep solitude still rely upon others. So pose the question now, if you will, in order to realize the fulfillment and happiness that is your heart's desire, what would you love to receive from the world around you? From friends and loved ones, from the community at large, from teachers and sages, What would you love to receive so that you may realize the happiness you most deeply seek? And with each in-breath arouse this loving yearning. May I receive from those around me all that I truly need in order to follow my path, in order to realize the happiness that I most deeply seek. Without needing to reach out and take, may I gratefully receive all that I truly need from day to day, from year to year, and from moment to moment. May the world rise up to meet me and aid me in my pursuit of genuine happiness. With each in-breath arouses yearning of loving-kindness for yourself, and with each in-breath imagine the kindness and the compassion of others, the service of others. Rising up to meet you symbolically as light flowing in from all sides, meeting your every need, 
for hedonic well-being, for genuine happiness. The world rising up to meet you with each in-breath. Imagine this light converging in from all directions, converging in upon your body, saturating your body and mind, providing you with all you need. Now let's pose a third question. But first with the acknowledgement of the reality, the truth, that in order to realize such well-being, there must be inner transformation. We cannot simply stay as we are in terms of our minds, our behavior. There must be a transformation, a maturation a spiritual evolution, if you like. So once again we pose a question. In order to realize the happiness that is your heart's desire, how would you love to transform and mature as a human being? From what qualities of the mind, what qualities of behavior would you love to be free? And with what qualities would you love to be imbued that will further you, nurture you, support you in your quest for genuine happiness? What kind of a person would you love to become?
with each out-breath arouse the yearning. May I become this person from day to day. May I mature, evolve. May I become the person I'd love to become. And with each out-breath, as you arouse this aspiration, imagine that you do indeed have this potential. Imagine this potential symbolically as this orb of light at your heart. With each out-breath, imagine rays of light cascading forth from this inexhaustible source, filling your body and your mind, your whole being. From breath to breath, let your imagination play. Imagine from breath to breath, becoming the person you would love to become, stage by stage. Then we come to the final phase of this meditation, acknowledging the reality that not only are we reliant upon others for our own happiness and flourishing, but we are constantly influencing the world around us, even with our breath, with our physical presence, let alone with our activities. We are making a difference one way or another. We are making an impact. Now attending once again to your own flourishing, your own fulfillment, in order to realize the greatest possible meaning for yourself as an individual, but an individual who lives in this fabric of existence, one of profound interdependence. Raise the question, in order to realize the greatest meaning in your own life, what would you truly love to offer to the world around you, to those who are near and far, 
in the short term and the long term. Given your own unique background, your gifts, your interests, what are the goods that you would love to offer to the world around you? So that when you do come to the end of your life, hopefully have an opportunity to look back with a bit of leisure, looking back on a life that is coming to an end, that you will look back with a sense of satisfaction, the confidence, the knowledge. This was a life well led. I offered my best. And it's okay to go now. It's quite okay. What would you love to offer to the world? Each out-breath arouses aspiration of loving-kindness. May I offer my very best. And with each out-breath, breathe out this light of loving-kindness and imagine, as you let your imagination play, imagine this light taking on the forms, manifesting as that which you would truly love to offer. Breathe out this light of loving-kindness. each out-breath, imagine here and now offering your very best. With each out-breath,
And then for a moment, let all appearances and all objects of the mind dissolve back into the space of the mind, release all aspirations. And let your awareness return to its own place, utterly at ease, at rest, effortlessly illuminating its own nature in this awareness of awareness. bring the session to a close. So this is a practice of loving-kindness directed towards oneself. At the same time, to imagine one's own flourishing in a way that gives nothing back to the rest of the world at all, that you're just irrelevant to everybody else, is a very emaciated, <laughs> deficient form of flourishing, isn't it? I feel really good, but I'm irrelevant to everybody else. I'm not offering anything back at all. It just doesn't strike me as flourishing. It sounds more like a, mm, a brain imbalance, some chem chemical, chemical problem in the brain. I feel good, but I'm irrelevant. <coughs> so His Holiness Dalai Lama has all, um, often made the comment that if you're going to be selfish, okay, but be intelligently selfish, right? And such focus on the self with wisdom shows that there is really no such thing as flourishing as an individual in a way that is irrelevant to, that is disconnected from the world around us. And so leading a truly meaningful and fulfilling life is to live an altruistic life. Shantideva, the great Indian Bodhisattva, made a, a similar point in the first chapter of his text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. I can only paraphrase it, but he said, if you don't reflect upon and really dwell upon the benefits of bodhicitta for yourself, if you, don't, if you don't see what good it would bring you as an individual, 
And really reflect upon that and thereby inspire yourself. Ah, what a good thing it would be to develop bodhicitta for myself. If you don't reflect upon that, how are you ever going to develop bodhicitta for others? So he's acknowledging the value of reflecting for one's own well-being. But you see here in this cultivation of genuine happiness, it's not competitive. And that's really one of the most marvelous things about the cultivation of genuine happiness, that the more one person has, nobody else has any less. And I think it's across the board. If one person is more ethical and deriving a real satisfaction, sense of well-being and so forth, from leading a very ethical way of life, nobody got any less. Nobody else has to live a less ethical life. If one person achieved shamatha, nobody else became more unstable and dull. Right? Nobody else lost. So one person achieved shamatha, oh, then everybody else says, oh, if she can achieve shamatha, then why can't I? You know, it's not competitive. And likewise, for the four measurables and so forth, and for the cultivation of insight and wisdom, one person has more, nobody else has any less. So that's a tremendous boon. Because if not, I don't think it's for all, but for many, many, I'd say most, hedonic pleasures. If one person or one group has more, by and large, somebody else got less. Natural resources are really obvious. Water. Water. Somebody has more, like the Rio Grande, it's an American river, you know. Even though it has a Mexican name. Oh, American river, right? Why? Because it started in the Rocky Mountains? In Mexico, it gets none? Right? So it's just one of many cases. One country says, it's our river. And by the time it gets to Mexico, it's a little trickle. There, have Mexico, have a trickle. You know. One has more, somebody else has less. Right? It's true. For all these outer resources. Genuine happiness is different. So, one point that I think it might be of interesting, I certainly find it so, and that is insofar as we are really orienting our pursuit of happiness to hedonic pleasure, basically hoping to be lucky, you know? Lucky in our relationships, lucky in, in, in perhaps having children, the children will turn out as we hope they turn out, all the way through. You know, childhood, adolescence, they just bring us happy, happiness, 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 year after year. And our jobs bring us happiness in our environment, in our homes, in our possessions, and so forth. It has to be, within the context of this lifetime, it's basically a matter of being lucky. I would say, on the whole, samsara is not user-friendly. You know? Like Macintosh apples. Macintosh, Apple computers, they're user-friendly. But samsara, not so user-friendly. Really. You take really good care of it. You take really good care of your relationships and really good care of your possessions and really good care of, and then, like in Santa Barbara, your house burns down from one of the multiple fires. You know, whoops, I did a really good job, uh, but it's all gone. You take really good care of your health, and then you find you have Parkinson's disease or you have this disease, you have that disease. You take really good care of your children, but some of the children really go astray, really get into problems. And you did everything you can for them. And they still can go astray. You can't control them. So, samsara is not so user-friendly. We can't count on it. It's quite clear that rotten things happen to really good people. That's been true for a long time, right? Really virtuous people, noble people, yogis, saints benevolent people, altruistic people, they still get, get it in the teeth about as much as anybody else, isn't it? 
in terms of disease and just natural calamities and so forth. There's no immunity. I was so virtuous, I'm sure I'll have no economic problems. So virtuous, I'll have really good health my whole life. Wish, but it's not true. So really rotten things happen to really virtuous people within the context of this lifetime. And sometimes real scoundrels, <laughs> they luck out. It just happens, isn't it? You know, just really good health, live long life, you know, lots of money, lots of enjoyments. And yet life is very, very, you know, unwholesome. So my sense within the context of one lifetime is in terms of hedonic pursuit, the pursuit of hedonic pleasure, it's just like a crapshoot. It's like going into a casino. You're going with a lot of money, maybe, maybe you'll be lucky, maybe you won't, but there's just no guarantee you may be intelligent, hardworking, and have a superb education and still be a failure. It happens. And other people have hardly any education at all, not even that bright, and they just luck out. You know, they meet the right people at the right time and out rolls the red carpet and they're, you know, just swimming in gravy. So there it is. And for many people, that is it. That is the pursuit of happiness. And then we, peep, we hear so often from the celebrities on, on top, all you have to do is believe in yourself. <laughs> how, how, how often have we heard that one from the great movie stars, the celebrities, the rock singers? Just believe in yourself. I did, and look at me. <laughs> you know? That's not enough. You can believe in yourself and still crash and burn. It's true, isn't it? Right? So what else is there? And there's the pursuit of genuine happiness. And here I think, just in that pursuit, if we get a clear vision of what this entails, that it's not about dopamine levels and serotonin levels, it's not just about brain chemistry, it's got deep roots. This pursuit of genuine happiness, some of the greatest sages in history, East and West, such as St. Augustine, the Dalai Lama, and many others, East and West, multiple traditions, have said the pursuit of happiness is the meaning of life. They're certainly not talking about hedonic pleasure. That's for sure. But it's the very meaning of life. It strikes me as an extremely profound statement. But here's what I'm getting at. I don't want to monologue much more. We have a lot of questions, so I'm going to try to wrap this up. But here's a hypothesis. And that is reality is user-friendly insofar as there's a gradient there. Reality is user-friendly insofar as we orient our lives towards genuine happiness. That's a really a bold hypothesis. It completely shatters the notion that we're simply living in a great big mindless mechanistic physical universe run by utterly mindless physical laws and we are just these little waifs wandering around waiting to get clobbered. That's the materialistic view, which is really quite desperate. What if it's not true? What if these, these maxims from wisdom traditions, East and West, rolling out for millennia? So many phrases, when the, guru, when the disciple is ready, the guru appears. Uh, if you take one step towards God, God takes ten steps towards you. So many statements of that sort, you know, coming from theistic context, non-theistic context. There's a statement from Buddhism, from the Buddha Dhamma, that if you are, have a very pure motivation, you're a yogi living in a cave, and you have very pure motivation, true altruistic bodhicitta, or at least even just pure renunciation, really pure motivation, and you're out of food. I think it was Gishing Aonjaidi told us. You're out of food, you're living in your cave. Food will roll uphill to get to your cave. Well, whether it actually has to roll and defy the laws of gravity, 
But you know, I've been doing this for 40 years and it's just weird that that turns out to be true. You see one instance and say, oh boy, that was lucky. I'll give you one example. I won't say his name, but he's a man I know very well. He's an old, old friend. And he's English. And he left England about 40 years ago. He was a heroin junkie. He was a heroin addict. Heroin addict. Yeah. But he was a hippie, a classic hippie. 60s, you know, my generation. And he left England with 10 pounds. So $15, $20, something like that. And then he hitchhiked and he, he made his way overland from England across Europe, across the Near East, all the way to India on 10 pounds. Not bad, eh? Got to India. He's a heroin junkie, barrel. But he's going to India to find truth, enlightenment, something cool, something even better than heroin. And I've heard heroin's pretty good. I don't recommend it. He made his way to India, still a junkie. From India, he wandered around looking for wise people, wound up coming into Dharamsala. That's where we became friends. He's got no source of income. He's not, no, got no parents sending him money. He got to Dharamsala. The Library of Tibetan Works and Archives was there. He matriculated, started becoming a very keen Dharma student, attended classes, became a very good Dharma student, became fluent in Tibetan, then studied for years in the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics, learned Buddhist philosophy, worldview, really learned Buddhism very well. He has no income, by the way. He's still working on that 10 pounds, right? And then this lovely woman came into his life. They fell in love. They married, had two children, lived there for years. Ten pounds really can get stretched, right? <laughs> and eventually, he really saw, after living for years in India, found, okay, time to get the kids back. His kids were growing up. They needed some more schooling. So he took them back to England. I asked him once, we were close friends. We are still close friends. But I asked him once when I had a little bit of extra food. Once when I was, I was, when after I left the Buddhist school dialectics and I was meditating on the side of the mountain, I had a bit of extra food. And he was living in this, I was living in my little shed, he was living in this little shed about 200 meters away. And I went over and said, um, I won't say his name, but, oh friend, oh, I got some extra food. Could you use some food? Because I know he has no income. And he's not a, a yogi that doesn't live, that just lives on air. And I said, you know, I've got some extra food, would you like some food? And he said, oh no, I've got more than I can eat. How did that happen? It just kept on rolling up the hill. Rolling up the hill by way of Alan Wallace going across the hill. But he didn't even need my food. He never missed a meal. I never missed a meal. And I ran out of money about maybe the first, after the first, I was in India for the first time for four years. I ran out of money, I think, after about one year. All money finished. None. But I absolutely didn't want to come home. I'd found the gold mine. I'd found the place, this was it. I'd found the place I wanted to be. Money materialized by friends, by generosity. But it happened. Among our 14 yogis coming out of the Shamatha Project, this is an interesting one. We had 70 people in the Shamatha Project. Basically, two times 35. Out of them, 14 decided for some months they wanted to continue in full-time practice. Now, Santa Barbara Institute at that time had about $30,000 that I'd kind of set aside to support yogis who wanted to go continue in full-time practice. Well, we had several of them. We paid for their rent, paid for their food, and so forth. And then $30,000 is finished. No more. Finished. To the best of my knowledge, I can't remember a single person coming out of a retreat simply because there was no money, there was no food. So a number came out of retreat, but for good reason. 
You know, you go into retreat for good reason, you come out of retreat for good reason. I don't know of one said, oh, I really want to be in retreat, I want to practice just all day, a total commitment, but there's no money, so I have to go out. I don't know of even one. That's interesting. So I, I could go on and on about my own life story, but that's just one person, but I've been watching this for a long time. And there really does seem to be something about the nature of reality. If this is true, if reality is user-friendly, insofar as we are orienting our lives towards the pursuit of genuine happiness. That is a massively profound statement about the nature of reality. Really deep. And I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. So, it's a great empirical question. Not simply a matter of metaphysical belief, but it's an empirical question It's pretty interesting. So, let's see what some of the questions are. Questions or comments? Yeah, here's a nice, nice short one. I can't, quite rem I can't quite read the signature at the end, but I'd be happy if you would let me know who it is. I have a question about no self, personality, character, and free will. <laughs> Angela. Angela. She likes little questions. Little ones that I can just give a sound bite and answers it all. Well, this, of course, is enormous, and we have 20 minutes, so I could easily spiel into at least 20 minutes. I'll try to give something, I'll do my best to give something that is meaningful but still concise. And I'd like to focus on the free will business. Uh, in one of my next four books, there'll be a big, long chapter on that, and I have discussed it at quite some, I've, given, I've lectured on that a number of times, so eventually when the retreat's over, you can see, listen to a whole discourse on that if you're interested. But I want to come back to be really practical here and now with the practices we have at our fingertips. So first of all, I'd like to define free will in a pragmatic way, not metaphysical, ontological, having to do with, you know, whatever. No, something practical. And that is, first of all, what is not practical is free will is defined as the ability to make choices that completely stand outside of any nexus of causality. There's simply, you make the choice, but it's not influenced by causes and conditions. That, to mind, just doesn't make any sense at all, right? That's just a kind of an oblivion. I don't even know what that can mean. So no, notion of freedom as some autonomous ego standing outside of causality, just calling shots independently, is, to my mind, just silly and doesn't even need to be refuted. So let's, let's define it pragmatically and not metaphysically, and that is, if from moment to moment, as options come up, I could do this or I could do that. I'm about to make a choice. My choice is free. My will is free, I would suggest. If I am able to make choices that are most conducive to my own and others' well-being. That was simple. But choice after choice comes up. Option after option. Situation after situation comes up. And I assess this situation. I attend to it, and I use using my best judgment, my best wisdom, my memory, my anticipation, powers of imagination. I look, I could do this, or I could do that. And then I sense, this would be of greater benefit for my own, for my own genuine happiness, and of course, entangled with that, the genuine happiness of others. And that's what I wish to do, and that's what I'm doing. And then make the choice. That is freedom to my mind. What is not freedom, for example, is an alcoholic 
who doesn't have the freedom to walk in a straight line, who can't drive an automobile correctly, who can't think correctly, who can't make good choices because the mind is intoxicated. A person who is demented, a person who has psychosis, is not free, cannot make wise choices because of brain damage or brain chemistry or what have you, a, a severe mental disorder. So they are not free. But then consider to the extent, and here we have a gradation, to the extent that my mind is dominated by anger, to the extent that my mind is dominated by craving, self-centered attachment, to the extent that my mind is dominated by delusion, I'm not free. I'm not free. So to connect this with these practices here, something that is, I think, a straight arrow to, in a very practical way, achieving greater freedom, is settling the mind in its natural state. That one a bit especially. And why? Because we're getting a clearer and clearer vision. We're becoming lucid with respect to the mind, such that when an impulse arises, it could be a desire. Well, there's all kinds of desires, wholesome, unwholesome, neutral, but other, other emotions as well. It could be anger, it could be jealousy, it could be compassion, it could be loving kindness, whatever. But when an impulse arises, right, to act, that it's spurring us on into some type of action, manifesting in the world, there the metacognitive awareness is observing. And so that we don't, we're not immediately cognitively fused with whatever impulse it is, the desire, the emotion. We're able to attend to it, not by dissociation, but simply by being present. And with that attendance, that metacognitive awareness of the impulse that's arising in the mind, recognizing it, and then being able to pause just for a moment and see, is that worth pursuing or not? Asking the wisdom question. And of course, the more we cultivate wisdom, and some of that just comes with age and comes with cultivation, but insofar as we have wisdom, we can apply it. And that metacognitive awareness to recognize the impulses, the desires and so forth, before they get enacted, then we can choose, ah, that would give me short-term gratification, long-term, I don't think so. Maybe not. So this is a practical application of freedom. And the parallel with lucid dreaming is so strong. In lucid dreaming, we're cognitively fused with everything. Cognitively fused with every emotion that comes up, every desire, every thought. We're reifying everything. We don't, we're fundamentally deluded about the nature of what we're experiencing. In a nor normal, non-lucid dream, we are not free. We are victims of our own momentum, our own habits, of our own mental afflictions. We're just like a piece of wood carried along by a wave. Become lucid in a dream. Oh. Now the gates have opened for freedom. Now you really can be free. So, that's a short answer. It'll have to be really short because there are a lot of other questions. Really short follow-up. But we need your microphone because I'd like to have that followed. But it'll have to be short because these other ones I have to attend to as well. Thank you, Daniel. not really what I meant, um, what, what I was trying to figure out for myself is in how far, I mean, like, we're all, we all grew up in Western cultures and, um, you know, when you look at any creative person, you know, every single one of, you know, take any writer, any painter, whatever, mm -hmm. is talking about creating a strong personality, a free personality, that's why free will was really in there. Um, you know, like 
if you are just fucked around by all sorts of knee-jerk reactions instead of sure. wise later sure. decisions and so on, mm -hmm. you have less freedom. But what I was really trying to figure out for myself was, um, you know, we're so conditioned in a way to sure, form course. strong personalities, mm -hmm. strong will and all of that. I mean, how does that interfere? How does this relate to our practice here? Right. Where we're trying to mm -hmm. dissociate ourselves from... Yeah. Yeah, let's let this one play out over the weeks because otherwise that will be the whole evening and, and it won't, the evening won't be enough. Um, for starters, I think generalizations are difficult here. Um, a person like Van Gogh clearly had some pretty deep psychological problems. Right? Pretty severe. Enormously creative. I love his art. But I wouldn't want to be him. Because I don't think he had much freedom. In certain levels. He was, you know, he was a... He was a mentally disturbed person. And so there's no homogeneity there. They're, they're not all the same. Some of them, you know, are inwardly tortured, and out it comes his music. Other ones really much more serene. Bach had a very orderly life. I don't see any great trauma, psychosis or anything. Very orderly, just turning out one masterpiece after another, because he needed to, to pay, you know, to take care of his family, you know. Beethoven, much more disturbed you know, a lot more drama, and so forth and so on, so they differ a lot. But if we go over to the spiritual traditions, of course, Bach was deeply religious. Many of the great artistic souls were not, some were. But go over to the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, and some of the greatest work, greatest pieces of work, of art, and so forth, coming from very deeply spiritually realized souls. So there's a lot to be said here, but to have developed a strong personality, I would say, frankly, I mean, you know, the Dalai Lama, I think, is a strong personality. He's not a weak-willed person. He's got a very forceful personality. He's bold. He's very strong. He's very dynamic. You know, he's, he's a powerful person. He really is. Even though no money, no political power. But he, he scares the Chinese government. One monk, one simple monk is definitely frightening, if not terrifying, the Chinese government. Can you imagine that? Is it because he's got a big ego? No, it's not. Clearly not. There's tremendous power there. There's a real force there. It's very compassionate. It's got depth. It's got great intelligence behind it. At the same time, tremendous humility. It's genuine. It's all the way down to the roots. So I think to recognize that having a strong personality does not mean necessarily, it may, but not necessarily mean a powerful reification of the self. One may powerfully reify, re realize, reify the self, I really am really strong, and be a great big jerk, you know, with a big ego, and not do anything, not accomplish anything meaningful. You're just a big ego, big arrogant jerk, right? So having a strong personality doesn't guarantee anything good. On the other hand, having a very strong personality like, like the Dalai Lama or other, oh, people like Mother Teresa, she was one character, I understand, I never met her. But a strongly developed personality, by all accounts, yes. And many, many others of that sort. Big ego? I have no reason to believe that. You know? So it's a very subtle question. But I think if the, if the power is coming, the, the forcefulness, the strength of the person is coming from wisdom, coming from insight, coming from inner stability, coming from inner maturity, inner balance, none of that has anything to do with ego per se or delusion. So, short answer. Oh, not so. So there's a few, but much more can be said about that one. Oh. oh, here's an interesting one. Are there many similarities between Dzogchen and Advaita Vedanta, 
that is non-dual Vedanta system in Hinduism, people such as Ramana Maharshi, Sri uh, Nis, Nisargata, Nis, Nisargadatta, wasn't this the, was that the guru of, of Babarandas? Can't remember. But I am that. There we go. Thank you. And then even Krishnamurti. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting question: relationship between Dzogchen and Advaita Vedanta. I have read a number of a number of sources in Vedanta. No expert. I have addressed this in one book, uh, Mind and the Balance. And I cited actually a Westerner who I think was really quite accomplished within the Vedanta tradition, quite authentic. Uh, his name was uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf, and his his first person accounts of his experience. I knew people. I missed him just by months, but I knew people very very close to him, and uh, he really sounded authentic, as far as I can tell, and it sounded like very profound, authentic Advaita Vedanta insight. Really struck me as authentic. Check it out for yourself. But Franklin Merrill Wolf, uh, he died in 1985. 1985. Uh, but of course, most of the great adepts of the, of the Vedanta tradition are Asian. One person I've read, not with, with great thoroughness, but I have read with great interest, is Ramana Maharshi. And of course, I've read background of Shankara and so forth and so on. But in terms of a recent accomplished adept within the Advaita Vedanta tradition, even though he wasn't so systematically trained in that, his teachings are very much in accord with Advaita Vedanta, Ramana Maharshi. I read some of his teachings, and I did see a very powerful resonance or what looked like common ground in terms of its insights and those that are expressed in the Dzogchen tradition. It looked like really something more, a non-trivial interface, a non-trivial overlap. It looked really quite deep. And some of the metaphors that are used are the same. Uh, a lot of the descriptions are quite same. And so it looks to me really quite, you know, really there's definitely some common ground there. I asked about this to, with um, my primary Theravada teacher, the Venerable Ananda Maitreya, Balangota Ananda Maitreya, this extraordinary Sri Lankan monk, scholar, and contemplative. And he was asked by some Vedanta nuns in California who spent their whole lives studying and practicing Vedanta. He's a Theravada, true and true Theravada, consummate scholar, accomplished meditator. And he was asked by them, what do you think is the connection between Theravada Buddhism and the vision of Nirvana in Theravada Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta? They seem to be somewhat similar. How similar do you think they are? And his answer as an extraordinary scholar, I mean, the man has consummate knowledge, it was very interesting. Uh, he said, it's too close to call. He said, I can't say they're the same, but I can't say they're really fundamentally different either. They're close. Now, as I always read, so I'll just end on this. I think it's really worthy of much deeper investigation, and scholars will undoubtedly do it. They'll take a whole bunch of Buddhist books here, a Dzogchen, a whole bunch of Advaita books there, and they'll think about it a whole lot, and then they'll write another book. That's what scholars do. Scholars write books about books, you might have noticed. Right? And people who like books read scholars' books. Um, so they can write another book about other scholars' books. It's mm, self-perpetuating per, 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 recycle because they all want tenure. <laughs> they want tenure. Uh, in any case, to be a bit more serious and perhaps more charitable, um, what would be really interesting would be to get some very accomplished yogis in the Vedanta tradition and accomplished yogis in the Dzogchen tradition and let them work it out because they actually know what they're talking about and not just what the books say. But I will offer this reflection on my readings of Ramana Maharshi. In terms of the wisdom aspect, it looked an awful lot like Rikpa when he's talking about this deepest dimension of consciousness. It looked a lot like Rikpa. It was hard to distinguish it. 
But as I read and read and read as he was having, having, engaging in these dialogues with his students, one thing that I didn't see at all, and I looked, and I'm really open, I, I'm happy to see similarities, but what I didn't see was bodhicitta. I didn't see that. I saw the inactive element. I spoke two days ago about the arhat who passes away and enters perhaps into rikpa, enters into this unconditioned, unborn, undying dimension of consciousness that is profound stillness. That seems to be there in Advaita Vedanta. But this manifold aspect, the dynamic, the engaging, the coming out, launched into the world with compassion, with great compassion, I don't see it. And maybe that's just come, I, I'm ignorant, maybe I haven't read the right books. But I haven't seen the bodhicitta there. And Franklin Merrill Wolf, again, a very open-minded man, brilliant. He was a mathematician, philosopher, and really quite an adept as a yogi. Um, he was trained in Vedanta, and I think he had profound realization. And then later, he had his realization in 1949, I believe it was. And then later, years later, he encountered Mahayana Buddhism and the Bodhisattva ideal. And he said, ah, that was it. And he really drew to that. And then he learned about Dzogchen. He said, ah, now that's it. That's it. The, 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 the Dzogchen was there, the Vedanta, but it had the Bodhicitta. And he wanted to offer a big chunk of his land, the land you visited. He wanted to offer a big chunk of his land to one Dzogchen teacher, Tatsantuku. He never even received teachings from him, as far as I knew. But what he did not apparently find in, in Vedanta, he found in Mahayana Buddhism, in this Bodhisattva ideal. So that may be maybe one significant difference. Okay? For the wisdom, it looks very similar. Okay. Then we've got a few more minutes. So would you please briefly <laughs> contemplate which qualities transform into each of the five wisdoms of the five Buddhist families? Oh, I think I can do that. Please could you say more about combinations of balancing elements in connection with shamatha practice and techniques? And they may say, yep, um, uh, briefly, for the five Buddha, Buddha uh, families, as, as we have about four minutes left, uh, we relate these to what are called the five poisons. So the short list, as you know, craving, hostility, delusion. The, the long list is those three plus envy and pride. Five poisons. So I, I spoke to, two days ago about how these are actually, how do you say, rooted in, stem from the deepest dimension, which is primordially pure, but gets obscured and gets crystallized, gets ossified, gets concretized, and then manifests in these afflictive fashions. So if one is envious, if one is really jealous, it's painful. It's really painful. And likewise, if anger and rage fills the mind, it's so painful. So it's not at all like pristine awareness. So, but to see through them, either by way of Vajrayana to transmute them, or through Dzogchen to see through their manifest impure nature to their essential purity by this kind of a breakthrough process, to see even mental afflictions as effulgences, creative displays of pristine awareness, then what does it track back to? So I'll think in terms of chakras. Um, delusion. Delusion, when seen in its purified form, is the, I'll use the word primordial wisdom, although I generally prefer primordial consciousness. But more people say primordial wisdom, I'll stick with it. Primordial wisdom of Dhammadhatu, ultimate nature of reality. That delusion itself, when, when you take off the layers and you see its essential nature, delusion itself is at heart this deepest realization 
of Dhammatatu, the absolute space of phenomena. Then we have Amitabha, and that's related to um, Varochana. Varochana. Then we have the Amitabha, and this relates to the mental affliction, the poison of attachment and craving, desire. And when we see through to its essential nature, in Tibetan it's called Sosotope Yeshe. The first one is called Chuying Yeshe. The second one is Sosotope Yeshe. This is the primordial wisdom of discernment, of able to distinguish clearly this from that, the very sharp, clear, discerning, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. So desire and craving actually is stemmed from that. And then there's anger, good old anger and hatred. And by the way, these are color-coded. For the first one is white, the second one is red, this one is deep blue. And so this is um, uh, akshobhya. Akshobhya is a Buddhist family. The mental affliction or the mental poison is hatred or anger. But when you see through it to its fundamental source, it's mirror-like wisdom. It's mirror-like wisdom. And then we have pride, arrogance. It's color-coded as gold. Its family is Ratnasambhava. And when we see through pride and arrogance, we see it, it manifests that it's its essential nature as the wisdom of equality. The other one is Melong Yeshe. Yeshe. And then finally, there's the mental affliction or poison of envy. It's color-coded green. It's interesting, too. We say in English, you're green with envy. I don't know if that's true in other, other languages. Is it true in Spanish? Do you say green with envy or do you say purple or yellow? Green with envy. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Any, we have a lot of languages. Just out of curiosity, any other language? Auf Deutsch? Do you say green? Envy? Or it doesn't come up? Envy has no color. Okay. Maybe the Germans don't have envy. <laughs> so, karasa. So we go to the green. This is envy and when when it's transmuted or see to its nature, this is the, the primordial wisdom of accomplishment. It gets everything done. Okay? So those five, the short answer. In terms of color, the combinations, and on this note we'll end. Ha. What's that? Oh, Amogasiddhi. Amogasiddhi. Yeah. So I think of them as Varochana, Amitabha, Akshobhya, Ratnasambhava, and Amogasiddhi. We'll come to the contemplative science one. We'll have that one a little bit later because there's not enough time tonight. But in terms of balancing, balancing elements in connection with the shamatha practice and techniques, uh, I would just mention what I mentioned so briefly this morning because time is out, um, that especially for the likes of us, we have, in terms of body types or psychophysiological constitutions, well, like Mongolians, like Tibetans, like Thais, and so forth, there are some people who are strong in phlegm, some people strong in wind, some people strong in bile. That's everywhere all over the planet, right? Uh, but we can speak of certain climates and geographical areas that are much stronger in some elements than others. So here, a lot of heat, a lot of moisture, a lot of earth, not that much wind. Tibet, a lot of wind. Mongolia, a lot of wind. Cold, harsh, it's, it's a tough climate. In the summer, really hot. In the winter, can be brutal, really brutal, as this last winter has been. Uh, but so, for psychophysiological types, all of this, but modernity, if we now speak of a whole way that society maneuvers, engages, modernity, which, I mean, the West kind of began it, Europe, America, Australia, uh, it's really big on wind really strong in wind, big wind. 
Wind is also very strongly associated with desire. Phlegm with delusion. Bile with anger. Wind with desire. It goes back to Indian Ayurvedic and traditional Tibetan medicine. And it's so obviously true. This is just an, a rampantly desire-driven society that's become global, the global village, just rampant in desire. I mean, one country after another stacking up these massive debts as if they thought they'd never have to pay off their credit cards. This is really weird, you know. I thought maybe it was only in America, but it turned out to be true in Greece and in England and Australia. What's wrong with everybody, you know? And so we are living in a a way of life with modern society where wind is really prominent. One old friend of mine, I have two minutes before five after, Losan uh, Rapke, wonderful man. We were monks together, well-trained as a monk, well-trained in Tibetan medicine, and he's now a well-trained uh, clinical psychologist, research psychologist. But he knows Tibetan medicine very well and lived in, a, in the West for a long time. He said, all of you Westerners, he was referring especially to Americans where he was living, he said, you Americans as a whole, you all have really serious wind disorders. You know I mean, your, your prana system, your winds, you're really out of whack. You're really imbalanced. It's just generically. You all have wind disorders. Lunginatsa, shut out it. But considering how sick you are, you cope very well. <laughs> right? And so given that, given that all of the, the motility, the drive, the energy, the desire, the goal-oriented, the quick fix, give me something, I'm sick, give me a pill, make me feel better now, you know, then the remedy's got to be chill, Cool out, calm down, lie down, go to the infirmary, spend a year in the infirmary. <laughs> breathe deeply, breathe. <sighs> Just keep on breathing out. Get back to me in about a month. <laughs> you know? Come back to earth and breathe all that excess air out until it just trickles back in and breathe it out. You know? And so we've got to balance out to apply a meditative remedy to living in the modern world. Lots of earth, lots of relaxation. We can't pretend as if we're Mongolians, unless you're a Mongolian. Can't pretend that you're Tibetan. And just assume that if we practice just like them, we'll get the same, same results. Ain't gonna happen. Because the body minds we're bringing in are wired really differently. So it's not to say we should start a new Dharma. I'm not saying anything that at all. But we really have to take account that our bodies have been deeply impacted by just where we grew up, how we grew up, the pace of life, and pace of life wherever it is, you know, in Russia, in East Germany, it's everywhere. Take that into account first, get some equilibrium, and then go, then carry on more classically. Okay? That's my thoughts. I could be wrong. But I think we're pretty windy people. Hola, so? It's 6.05. I'm in by the skin of my teeth. Yes, now we do to finish. So good. Enjoy your meal. I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs>